Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Joyce Hall, one of your hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Peter Cole about his new award-winning book, Dock Worker Power, Race and Activism in Durban and the San Francisco Bay Area. I found this to be a fascinating, densely researched account of dock workers who are often overlooked but important historical actors and their activism amidst macroeconomic and technological changes in the shipping industry between the 1940s and the 1970s. This book narrates their organizing against racism and exploitation on the waterfronts in Durban, South Africa, and San Francisco, USA. Peter Cole is currently a professor of history at Western Illinois University and a research associate in the Society, Work, and Development Institute at the University of the Witzwatersbahn in Johannesburg. Peter Cole, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm uh, very happy to be with you today. Thank you. Same. We're so happy to have you. Peter, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Mm, Yes, my pleasure. Um, You know, I was born and raised in a nameless suburb of Miami, Florida, and uh, went to college in New York City at Columbia. It was in Columbia, um, which has a very well-known and respected department of history that I um, became really passionate about not just studying history, but thinking about it as a career. Um, He was not my mentor, but Eric Foner, I took classes with Eric Foner and sort of legendary historian of Reconstruction. And uh, he was also the first person to assign a book on labor history. It was on antebellum New York City. And it opened my eyes to uh, essentially a world that I never even had thought about. I don't come from a working class family or a union family. And um, went off to grad school right after college. That may or may not have been a mistake. Um, but uh, ended up at Georgetown, which is a great place to study history, especially U.S. history, because you have the Library of Congress, which is the largest library in the world, and the National Archives, which are where the federal government keeps its records when they give them up. And um, yeah, so like uh, that's a bit about my sort of personal trajectory. I guess then I did, like most um, people with PhDs, I was promptly unemployed. Um, I found some part-time work teaching as well as outside of teaching. Then I found temporary but full-time employment teaching at Boise State. And then um, I moved 20 years ago this year, amazing as it seems to me, um, to Western Illinois University, which is a college town in a rural part of the Midwest, sort of halfway between St. Louis and Chicago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book earlier on um, dock workers also. Um, uh, believe it or not, uh, it's so, I've written two books on the subject, um, but that was uh, came out of my dissertation. It was called Wobblies on the Waterfront, and it's about interracial unions in Philadelphia who are me- members of the industrial workers of the world. Um, and 
yeah, then um, even though I had no desire to write a second book on the same group of workers, I ended up writing a second book on the same group of workers. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Go crazy. Well, let's, let's get into that. How mm -hmm. did you come to write Doc Worker Power? Yeah, you know, so, you know, I had the opportunity to live and teach at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania um, in 2007. Uh, for a semester, I taught U.S. history, and I was assisting um, someone else who was directing a U.S. study abroad program in Dar es Salaam. University of Dar es Salaam is a legendary place. That's where um, most famously Walter Rodney was writing the book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, in the early 70s. Um, while I was living there for a short while, I took a trip down to South Africa. And like many people, um, I was interested really in the struggle against apartheid, even though I didn't know much about it. Um, and I was captivated by South Africa. And it took a few years to figure out, could I, in fact, write comparative history when I'm not trained as an Africanist? Um, what might I contribute to South African history and historiography as well as to the U.S.? That's part of the reason I ended up doing a second book on dock workers. I had to build on at least some of my strengths. Um, and also because as I believe I argue well, um, that in fact, these two groups of workers and these two ports and these two very different places, in fact, share a great deal in common. Yes. Okay. Well, let's get into the book. Um, yes, I know. I noted that your that your book is broken up into uh, three distinct themes. However, before we get into the themes, um, I wanted to ask a question about docs. So, in the book, you position docs as important sites of both local and international politics. And you choose to focus on two port cities, Durban, a city on the eastern coast of South Africa, and San Francisco, a city on the western coast of the United States. Why do you emphasize these two port cities? And can you tell us about the cultural, economic, and radical organi organizing histories of these two places? Of course. I'm happy to try. That's a, um, a lot to do. So, like, you know... Port cities, I argue, and I'm not the first by any means, that uh, share more in common with each other than they might with other cities in their same countries, um, because they often look outward. Uh, they're, by definition, places where people, as well as ideas, as well as cargo, goods, stuff, um, are exchanged, right? Raw materials and finished products. And so when we think of ports and port cities, we think of often economics, as I think we should, um, uh, but we also want to think about how these places, uh, how ports and more generally transportation are central to the local economy, the regional economy, the national economy. Um, and um, as it so happens, uh, you know, on the West Coast of America for well over 100 years, San Francisco was the most important port and really the most important city. Although in the 20th century, L.A. became larger. And then in the late 20th century, the port of L.A., became bigger and more important. Um, uh, but so really San Francisco for much of American history was the great city of the West. It's still a great place and interesting and important place, but it has been in numerous different ways supplanted by LA, but historically that wouldn't have been the case. Um, Durban is really the biggest port in South Africa, has been for more than a hundred years. It's um, also the biggest and busiest port in sub-Saharan Africa and one of the busiest in sub-Saharan, excuse me, Southern Hemisphere. Um, and so we have two Im very important ports and very important cities, each that um, uh, are really important to their home countries as well as to their home cities. Uh, uh, they also share in common, sort of randomly, but perhaps um, importantly, um, proximity to the gold fields, right? Like, and so both San Francisco and Durban rise as important places as to ship gold outward, right? Um, from the large gold fields in the Sierra Nevada in uh, several hundred miles east of San Francisco, and then in what became the city of Johannesburg. Johannesburg really is a city of gold that was created because of the what became the largest gold deposits mined in the world in the 19th and then 20th centuries. And so um, both cities are connected to um, their hinterlands, you might say, but also come to um, be crucial to their whole countries because they're shipping out these, this valuable commodity 
Um, and then, of course, other products, too. Um, and so economically speaking, these two places are important. I focus a lot, as you know, having read the book, like on those who work in the industry, um, who are often sort of forgotten, um, are sort of invisible, even when they're in plain sight, um, but also have tremendous power because of the positions that they hold in their, in, in their industry and in, and, and in their countries and really the global economy. Um, you know, but, uh, the last thing I would say for starters is that like, you know, when I came to this project, I knew a lot more about the San Francisco Bay area than I did about Durban, but I already was really interested in the union on the U S West coast, um, because the international longshore and warehouse union, although small in numbers has had tremendous influence and power in a number of the port cities in the West and more broadly, I would argue, of course, uh, in the country, right? Um, and then I came to learn much more about Durban. And in fact, that dock workers in Durban have played a huge role in that city. But also, as I argue, is one of the really the first theme in my book, um, that it, they play an important role in the, the sort of the local and national struggle against apartheid. Yeah, and I think, I think you illustrate, illustrate the, um, yeah, the national and international reach of, of both, both, both unions, this, this idea of worker power that operates locally, nationally, and internationally, um, really comes across. So let's talk more specifically about some of this worker power, um, specifically interracial unionism. Can you tell us a little bit about what it meant to be a dock worker fighting racial oppression in Jim Crow USA during the 1940s and 50s, and also parallel what it meant to be a dock worker fighting the segregation policies of the Union of South Africa in the same period. Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, when the West Coast U.S. Union, the ILWU, was born in the 1930s, um, the city of San Francisco was literally 99% white. And Oakland, which is often considered a very black city, um, only had 3% approximately African-American population. And so the, the Bay Area was not necessarily not diverse, but it didn't have many black folks. Um, it had some Asians, some Latinx people, et cetera. Um, so when the union was born, there were very few black dock workers. Um, there is a longer history to that that I cover, but it's important to appreciate that the union that was formed in the 30s in 1934, the LWU, led by this Australian immigrant named Harry Bridges, was from its inception committed to the idea of racial equality. Um, and so the small number of African-Americans on the waterfront were integrated into the union, were integrated into work gangs, um, were treated reasonably well, um, and that was widely seen as such. Um, in the 1940s during World War II, the population of African-Americans in the Bay Area skyrocketed. Most of those black men and women ended up in shipbuilding. Some ended up on the waterfront. Um, and then you've got basically a union ideologically committed to interracialism, yet never had really had to demonstrate it because there were a few blacks. But then during World War II, in fact, um, as hundreds and then a few thousand African-Americans joined the workforce, um, they found that, in fact, um, Local 10, which is, represents Bay Area dock workers, um, was incredibly inclusive and progressive, and that African-Americans found, without knowing it in advance and not choosing this work per se because of this, um, that they had found a home, if you will, in a union that treated them equally um, and defended their rights from racist treatment by, say, managers, supervisors, those outside of the union. Um, in the words of Cleophus Williams, who I interviewed several times, who was from rural Arkansas and who moved during what you know sometimes is called the Second Great Migration, um, it was the first time he had met white people, maybe, who were not racist, um, uh, who were committed to equality. Um, and he later came to know, as he said, that he learned that those people within the union who were most uh, white folks who were in the union, who were most committed to racial equality, also were on the left, be they communist, socialist, or some other form of left winger. Um, and so... That wasn't coincidence. In fact, Bridges and many who founded the union had founded a union uh, sort of that was anti-racist, partially because of their 
left politics. Um, but they didn't know that when they got these jobs, they learned this on the job. Um, now, some of those blacks who ended up on the waterfront in the area actually had experience as dock workers, others did not. Um, but very few had union experience and very few had experience of a union like this. Um, and so they learned that um, this union treated them well. Some of those African-Americans then became left-wing, although some brought their politics into the union. And then in the 40s and 50s this, uh, and into the 60s, this union became more heavily African-American in its membership. So that by the late 60s, um, the majority of local 10 members were African-American and that guy, Clufus Williams, had been elected president of the local. Um, so a union that literally was 99% white had transformed itself into a majority non-white institution um, over the course of the better part of, mm, uh, thir well, 30 years, right? Like a generation. Um, that's not unique. A number of other unions that were born in the 30s were also committed to racial equality. But it is highly unusual. Um, the shipbuilding unions, for instance, in the same region, the Bay Area, um, in the World War II were notoriously racist, um, excluded blacks from many types of work, um, tr put them on separate uh, sort of seniority lists, often didn't fight for African-Americans, segregated them into separate locals, etc. So the contrast within the labor movement between the LWU and, and actually a great many other U.S. unions was quite dramatic. Um, and so over time, many African-Americans became deeply committed to the union and its leader, Harry Bridges, because they had essentially been um, gotten a great deal. And I should also note that not only did they get treated well, this union um, dramatically ex improved the wages and conditions of these workers, dramatically reduced the danger of the work. Um, and essentially, as it was sometimes referred to, that people who worked on the waterfronts of the U.S. West Coast were nicknamed the Lords of the Docks um, because some people suggested that there was not a better blue-collar job to have in America than if you could get a job on the waterfront in an ILWU local. Um, and so for many people who, of course, don't have maybe advanced degrees, although some really educated and smart people are in the union, um, this was an incredible opportunity. Um, and so um, they both saw their economic conditions rise, um, as well as their sort of political conditions and social conditions improve. Um, now in Durban, it's a very different story, as you know, because I appreciate you also study both South Africa and the United States. Um, in Durban, the workforce was on the waterfront 100% black. Even before the formal rise and institution of apartheid, racial um, inequality, white supremacy, and racial segregation in work and home was already very much the norm. Um, and so in Durban, um, the, the workers going back to the 19th century on the waterfront who load and unload ships were Zulu, um, which was the largest ethnic group in that part of South Africa. Um, and then over time, some Kosa-speaking people from Pondoland, which is now the Eastern Cape, also joined that workforce. Um, but there you've got a workforce that's 100% black in a society in which this white minority um, exerts incredible power, state power, police power, economic power, social power, right? And so these dock workers, um, it's brutal manual work. That's the case. It's similar to what the San Francisco waterfront was like before the union um, in that uh, very long hours, very hard work, very dangerous um, little guarantee of work next tomorrow or the day after. It's sort of what's called casual labor. Um, and dock workers really sort of were on their backs. Um, now, because of their shared oppression, because of their shared ethnic identities, um, because of their shared racial identities, because of repression, and because they work together, and that last point's really important, um, that through the collective work that they do, they also are building a shared consciousness and identity. Um, they have a lot coming on, going on that helps us understand what, what we see, which is going back into the 19th century, but really accelerating in the 40s during World War II and then after World War II. Um, dock workers repeatedly struck in um, Durban, uh, refused to work ships, refused to report for work. Um, now, the tricky part is the legality of it. Black workers don't have the same legal rights as white workers did in South Africa, both before and during apartheid. Um, black workers didn't have generally the right to strike or unionize. And so these workers would collectively organize 
to refuse to report for work, technically that's not a strike because as individuals report for work, you can choose to report for work or not to try to get hired. Of course, if you don't try to get hired, you don't get paid. Um, and so if one person does it, no problem. But if the entire workforce, which also lives together because under in 20th century South African cities, many black workers were forced to live in single sex, racial specific housing called hostels, um, that these Durban dock workers who have these shared work identity, shared ethnic identity, shared racial identity, shared oppression uh, economically and politically um, refused. They basically would just all not report for work. Therefore, they're not breaking the law because they're not striking. But it has the same exact effect as if they all officially declared a strike. They did this during World War II. Why would black people give a hoot over about whether you're supporting the British or the Germans? Right, like uh, why? Um, so, in other words, it's an opportunity because Durban was super important to the British war effort, um, and then after the war, they continued to do this, so that um, they demonstrated power. And Durban's the f- most important import and export port in the country, um, and they often did this to get a raise. And you know, in a society in which economics and politics are merged, we call this right racial capitalism. Um, you know, any sort of demonstration of black worker power is also implicitly political power. Um, and then, of course, after the rise of formal apartheid, um, so same, same thing, like when dockers are refusing to work, there's, there's an implicit political threat. Um, by the late 1950s, um, these dock workers were increasingly coordinating their work stayaways, as it was referred to, um, with the ANC and the ANC's ally in the labor movement called SACTU, the South African Congress on Trade Unions. And so it was pretty clear by the late 50s that although, yes, these workers want to increase their earnings, they're also coordinating with political organizations that are very overtly anti-apartheid. Um, and so what we see is in both places, workers using their labor power to push for um, uplifting black people, both economically, but also against um, inequality in the political system. Wonderful. Um there you have a uh you have a quote that i really appreciated um in the second chapter um and it's about local 10 it says after the war and despite a reduction in work local 10 resisted the logic of zero-sum racial capitalism in which black workers benefited while white workers suffered and recommitted itself to equality and it seems like that that commitment to equality becomes the basis of the uh, kind of like the force that both of these like unions represent in their very in their two locales, and um, you show that dock workers, as you just mentioned uh, with the Durban workers, they influence these regional political movements, um, and you show that they promote interconnected class-based and race-based struggles in these cities at a time when in the United States, the classical civil rights movement had shifted to focus on legal citizenship. And in South Africa, uh, you know, the 1960s are referred to as the quiet decade, the decade of high apartheid. So can you explain, especially when we're reaching these kind of crescendos in the 1960s in these places, or I guess in South Africa would be the 1970s, um, uh, how that how that labor power um, went to influence regional struggles or uh, created regional solidarities because I believe you talk about that in the case of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Sure. So this is complicated stuff, and um, I believe me struggled along the way. Like I think it was George Fredrickson who noted uh, the great comparative historian of South Africa and the U.S. that. The closer one gets to the present, the trickier in some ways um, the chronologies get in terms of U.S. and South Africa, um, and a little less so with civil rights and anti-apartheid, although really in a way like what happens in America after World War II is even in the late 40s and 50s, there are some gains made legally for civil rights, whereas in South Africa things go backwards, right, for, 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 for black people. Um, and then it reconverges, you might say, later in the 20th century. Um, I did try to always keep these, as you nicely put it, class and race-based activism in constant conversation. Um, I reject the class or race 
um, I don't find that useful or beneficial. Um, I sort of see these always sort of in conversation and always sort of inextricably, inextricably connected. Um, and I think that's what a lot of the people I studied also believe, um, that, that, you know, that where do people have power? Well, um, you know, in the case of South Africa, as you noted, during the era of high apartheid, um, when basically a huge repression of anti-apartheid organizations, where can workers sort of exert, excuse me, where could black people exert power? Well, I'm not the first to say it either, but work might in fact be the, the, the one, but in some ways perhaps the most important place where black people, if organized collectively, could demonstrate um, power and therefore perhaps force change. Um, in the case of the U.S., as you noted, um, the sort of the most well-known um, civil rights organizations really sort of choose legal and political strategies um, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons that aren't entirely wrong for that as well. Um, but it does arguably... It's arguably a mistake because even in America, again, where do people have power? Um, now I'm a, I identify as a labor historian, and I always say that sort of the greatest power people have is to not work. Um, it's to put your hands in your pockets, as uh, sort of an old wobbly Big Bill Haywood said, um, because that's when you force basically those with power to listen, um, because you've hit them where it hurts most, which is their pocketbooks, to use this sort of metaphor of the pocket um, uh, without torturing it, I hope. Um, now, in the case of like uh, um, South Africa, I've mentioned before, and you also did, that Durban is crucial to the South African economy. Um, uh, South Africa is an export economy, although they are also an industrial economy, but they export raw materials like gold and diamonds, but they also sort of are importing finished goods and exporting some too. Um, when Durban basically is hit by these group of workers, a few thousand black workers, right? That has local implications, but also potentially national ones, which is why repression hits so hard, right? They, um, in the case of Durban in 1959, 1960, they reorganized the waterfront, they, that is employers, in coordination with the city government to basically eliminate casual labor. And basically everyone becomes sort of, in a way, a permanent employee so that they couldn't use that legal loophole anymore of just choosing to not report for work. Um, but as you know from reading my book, um, during the quiet decade, roughly the early 60s into the early 70s, um, when black worker activism is sort of dead, um, I always say that you know activists had either been killed, um, imprisoned, forced underground, banned, right, um, and that the leading organizations had been banned or gone into exile. Um, there are big debates among, as you know, anti-apartheid activists. Where do where where within the country can people in fact exert power? Um, and that um, 1973, famously, a series of strikes happen in Durban that demonstrate where black people have power. It's, it's once more on the job, and it sends a shockwave through the country, the Durban strikes of 1973. Um, now, what I do, and I'm not, again, the, there are some other people, David Hemson is the first who did so. Um, Ralph Calabert um, is another, um, he's Belgian, Hemson's um, South African, a white guy, and then also a man named Bernard Doubled, who's a South African. Um, Hemson and uh, Doubled, both from Durban. Um, you know, that there, um, that 1969, in the so-called quiet decade, um, dock workers strike. Um, thousands of dock workers strike. Now, they're all fired and sent to their homelands, as it were. Um, now, in 1971, they threaten to strike. Um, and both cases, actually, they get raises. 1972, late 1973, Durban dock workers go on strike again. Um, and just six weeks later, the, the larger launch, if you will, of the Durban strikes occur. And so much of uh, my book talks about how Durban dockers are essentially setting the table, if you will, for the Durban strikes. Um, and that in this so-called quiet decade, in fact, the largest strikes of black workers were happening on the Durban waterfront um, in a time when black workers were simply not doing it. Now, after the Durban strikes, there's an explosion of black worker activism. Blacks actually forced the state to legalize unions for black workers um, in the late 70s. Um, and black workers are suddenly sort of at the forefront of the struggle domestically against apartheid. And I'm suggesting that Durban dockers play a pivotal role in that. Um, now, 
in the U.S. side, it's in a way more, as you noted, a regional story as opposed to a national story. Um, the labor movement in America, sort of as represented by the AFL-CIO, is actually seen as a conservative institution by the 1960s. Um, they support the war in Vietnam, at least the leadership does. Um, some of their unions remain resistant to um, including black and female workers, um, some industries and unions better than others. Um, red baiting had resulted in the entire labor movement purging its radical left and moving rightward. But the LWU was actually outside of the mainstream labor movement. And so it, in a way, held on to traditions from the 30s that many other unions had abandoned. Um, but uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, too much, as you know, of the civil rights story is still sort of fixated on the South, outside of the South. Um, there's a lot of activism starting in 63, 64, 65 in American cities on the West, Midwest, and North. And in the Bay Area, ILWU is sort of a part of that, um, giving support to civil rights activists. Of course, they've already, a generation before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, have integrated their own ranks. They don't need to be forced. Um, they actually are ahead of the curve by a lot. Um, but they're also giving support for other social movements, including for... Um, uh, for people of color. Um, so they give support for American Indians in the Alcatraz occupation of, uh, of Pan-Indians in 1969. They give support to the um, United Farm Workers activism in California, which was predominantly Mexican, Mexican-Americans, and Filipino-Americans. Um, they gave support to um, student activists at San Francisco State, which was actually largely led by students of color. Um, and so... Um, this, the local 10 doesn't need, oh, of course, it could be better, right? It's ahead of, as I say, like sort of most uh, institutions in America. But they continue to sort of push their own union, some of the other locals that are intransigent. Um, I should note Los Angeles is a union, a local in the same union that was slower to fully integrate its ranks compared to the barrier. Um, Portland, uh, further north in Oregon, was so-called lily white for decades um, and so even within this pretty progressive union, some of their branches were far better than others when it came to racial equality. Uh, but um, so I try to sketch out basically how dock workers in um, both places are contributing to fighting against white supremacy at the local level, but also that it has national implications. Right, right. In many, in many different ways, too. Um, so I think... One of the most important interventions of dock worker power um, is the way that you capture workers' responses to um, sweeping technological changes within the industry in the period following the war. Um, and you're tracing specifically how workers responded to decasualization of labor and containerization. So can you tell us more about more about this? It's something that I think we need to talk about a lot more when we talk about the changes that are happening in the middle of the 20th century. This is not one that we focus on, and it's great that you did. Mm. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, when I started the book, I didn't know the first thing about the subject, and I resisted for a few years diving into it because in addition to the fact that I don't have formal training in South African history, I also don't have formal training in say, what we call the history of technology. Um, but I kept on running into this subject, which has the inelegant term containerization attached to it. Um, and I'm, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, you also mentioned uh, another theme that I think is of crucial importance to workers, which is this idea of casual labor, which basically means that you don't have a guaranteed job from, say, week to week or month to month or year to year. Instead, you get hired by the job which would mean or you work this ship and then after that, you got to find another job, right? Um, now, casual is sort of a crappy term. I mean, uh, these are professionals and full-time workers if, if they could be, but it's, they're referred to as casuals. Um, and that was uh, around the world, in ports around the world, um, before the 20th century and during the 20th century that many dock workers were hired in that fashion. They were hired just for that one job. That was the case also in Durban as well as in San Francisco, um, now, uh, casual labor is sort of crappy because, um, for many reasons, but the most basic is that you're exploited by the hiring bosses who can play workers, potential workers, off each other, uh, resulting in both hate and discrimination as well as sort of lower wages. 
um, or hers are weak. Um, and so one of the first things that the ILWU did was decasualize. Um, I call this decasualization from below because workers pushed upwards um, and they created and they were able to get a coastwide contract with a shipping association that allowed basically all jobs to run through a dispatch hall run by the union um, so that a company would call up the union hall and say, we need, say, 100 workers at Pier 21 to work coffee tomorrow. And then the union decided who sent these workers out, right? Like, a, And the, the union elected their own dispatchers. Uh, on an annual basis. So if you don't like who's doing the, the, the selecting, you can replace them as the principle of democracy works. Um, and then um, they also instituted, instituted a system they called low man out. This was an all male workforce at the time where um, those workers who had the fewest job hours um, in that quarter of the year would get the first opportunities if they wanted a job that day, right? And so they equalized the work opportunity. And this was also importantly, um, regardless of race, right? Um, and so they decasualized from below, which resulted in workers having way better opportunities, way more fair and transparent jobs. And this was loved, and this is incredibly radical, I should point out, like it maybe seems radical and it should be seen as such, right? Because very few workplaces um, do this sort of thing, let alone worker pushed. Now in Durban, it was decasualization from above. I mentioned it a few minutes ago. Because workers were too strong as casuals, which actually is atypical perhaps, um, but they were very well organized, they ended casualization, employers did, in order to attempt to weaken workers. And that worked for the better part of a decade. But as I noted, already by the late 60s, dockers have reorganized themselves, um, which is sort of incredible given the intense repression of apartheid. Now, um, just to complicate matters, right, like, uh, you know, simultaneously in the same era, really the 60s and into the 70s, we also have the introduction of this new method of shipping goods long distance that's called containerization because these metal containers, 20 to 40 feet standardized, some are 20, some are 40, right? Um, basically are introduced by um, some companies in the United States. And the LWU on the West Coast of the USA is the first union in the history of the industry in the world to basically negotiate the transition um, when you are now going to have these capital intensive technologies, these large cranes, and then, of course, the purchasing of all these metal boxes and the changing of ships, but then subsequently semi-trucks and trains to accommodate a seamless intermodal method of moving cargo. Um, instead of the hand loading and unloading of cargo into the hold of a ship, into uh, the back of a truck, etc., right? This new system would drastically increase productivity, but also drastically re reduce the number of workers needed, right? Um, now, who would want this system? Those who are, you know, worried about profits, who would not want it? Those who are worried about their jobs. Um, and so this union negotiated this in an incredible way, which um, has both positives and negatives. Basically, Harry Bridges, the leader, said, look, we're not going to so-called fight the, um, the progress, although I hate that phrase, um, um, uh, but we're going to protect all the existing workers. So the union was able to guarantee that not a single worker was fired and that they would take some money. They got higher, basically these royalties, uh, sort of a fund from employers that would fund the, um, what they refer to as shrinking from the top, meaning that they would um, buy out older workers into early retirements. So you shrink the workforce, not through firings, but through early retirements. And then over time, attrition also, meaning if someone um, quits or moves on or whatever, they don't replace. So within 20 years, the number of workers in San Francisco, Bay Area, and every other port had been dropped by, say, 70% or more um, as productivity drastically increased, actually 10 to 20 times. Um, however, the union had also negotiated much higher wages so that those who still had jobs, and again, no one was fired, um, they um, are materially even better off than they were. Now there's more to it than that, but the effect is a much smaller workforce, much higher productivity. No workers in the first generation laid off, but over time now, for instance, far fewer people work in this industry. Um, could that system work in other industries when new technologies are introduced? Obviously, the answer is yes. But very, very, very rarely do employers ask workers when a technology is introduced. They just do it, and whatever happens to the workers, well, it's tough. That's actually what happens in Durban. 
Durban workers, although they have demonstrated some power in the early 70s through strikes, don't have a union and um, are uh, yet. That's very strong. Um, the state of South Africa actually simultaneously rolls out containers in a very South African sort of way, right? Sort of very efficient, very top down, very sort of fascist, um, where they introduce containers, of course, first and most important at Durban, but countrywide in 1977. Within three years, half the workforce is fired and not a dime is passed on and improvements in productivity gains to the workers. And so this part of my book explores a contrast between the U.S. and South Africa on the waterfront, wherein uh, the San Francisco, basically a stronger union, is able to negotiate a relatively good deal, um, if far from perfect. Um, and in Durban, workers are far too weak. Uh, the last component uh, or issue I'll mention related to that is that as a result of containerization, in the 1980s, when black worker and black activism in South Africa is exploding, right? Um, this is before and then during the, the rise of the United Democratic Front, the FOSATU, the Federation of South African Trade Unions, and then later COSATU, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, created Durban dockers are unionized, but they're weak. They've been, they're still basically on their backs from containerization. And so um, although black workers in South Africa are actually, I'd say, at the pivotal to the anti-apartheid movement, Durban dockers are not, right? And so they are, their time had passed, you might say, as far as a contributing to the struggle. Right. Um, yeah, so you definitely outline sort of, yes, that containerization is a double-edged sword. Um, on the one hand, it provided this opportunity for the ILWU to negotiate and protect its workers from the excesses of technological layoffs. Um, but then... On the other hand, what I think you trace really carefully is um, kind of the retrospective, um, the the view of the view of Harry Bridges' policies in retrospect, according to different stakeholders, um, and w- ultimately what it meant. And it seems like the uh, it, it seems like the results are almost a little bit inconclusive, in the sense that. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, people feel different ways and it's hard to consider the counterfactual. Um, and then in South Africa, it's definitely, I think, more clearly a story of Durban worker decline. Um, so I'm wondering, kind of just trying to contextualize at least the U.S. Uh, the U.S. story um, in the in the in the historiography about the working class um, in the 60s and the 70s. Um, is it is it oversimplification to call this a declension narrative? Mm. Well, I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, labor history more broadly in the U.S., but globally, arguably, right, um, uh, as evidenced by the number of people in unions and more generally about um, with the decline of union membership and union power has come, not coincidentally, I think it's causal, um, uh, drastic increase in economic inequality in the U.S., in South Africa, in the world. Um, so is this a story of declension? Well, I always say go to a parking lot for Local 10 or Local 13 in L.A. Long Beach. The, those who have jobs in uh, Longshore in America, and I should say also on the East Coast, and there's another union, but they're also different but somewhat similar, workers get paid very well, right? Um, so there's very few jobs now, right? Um, shipping and transportation, it's actually partially, I would say, a major part of the explosion of global trade since the 1960s is because of containerization. It allows for such cheaper transportation costs that, for instance, manufacturing will move from developed countries to lesser developed countries. Um, the most obvious being the U.S. to Mexico, the U.S. to China, the U.S. to other parts of Asia as far as industrial production. Um, For consumers, of course, this means more products at cheaper price. And so for those who are pro-capitalist, we shouldn't forget, right, that we as consumers are in fact benefiting materially from fewer workers and higher productivity. Um, But like for workers, and we're often both consumers and workers, yeah, like, um, well, there's just far fewer Right. Um, it's very hard to get into this union. It's actually, I've joked many times to Longshore um, that they earn more than the average professor. Right. Like, uh, and so the, uh, you know, so depending on what looks now, the funny other comp- 
another interesting part is that Harry Bridges, supposedly this left-wing radical, this maybe a communist, maybe not. Honestly, I don't care if he was a formal member or not. But there's been a long, decades-long conversation about Harry Bridges' left politics. He was the one who basically encouraged his radical union to basically take more money in exchange for less power. Right? Um, so was he sort of, is he symbolic of this change from the so-called old left to the end of the old left, which of course in the late forties and fifties, much of the old left had been decimated by employer and state repression already in the U S. Um, you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think that, um, that workers um, are fewer is a major problem. We all need income, right? Like, uh, so for as I, as you know, from the book, I talk a lot about how a missed opportunity might've been sort of pushing for fewer hours. So you um, have more workers, but everyone works fewer hours. Um, why have we stopped at the eight hour day? Why not? We have the four hour day. Um, people fought for 80 years, roughly from the 1860s into the 1930s for the eight hour day in the U S it's been 80 years since we've had the federal government say that there should be a shorter official workday. Um, well, so um, that was not negotiated for in the 60s by the radical ILWU. It was not, to my knowledge, really sort of part of their thinking. Um, although in the 30s, during the Depression, there were a number of serious considerations, and in some workplaces and industries did redu- temporarily go to the six-hour day. Um, now we can go to Finland, yeah, um, where the, the new prime minister right, has argued for that she's pushing for right, the six-hour day for everyone. Um, I think sincerely that due to massive new technologies and a huge number of human beings on the planet, that's quite, that's realistic in my opinion. Um, it requires will that we have yet to see, but I, 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 if Finland can pull this off, I would be very excited. Yeah. Mm. Um, one of the, uh, kind of like one of the effects of, uh, containerization, uh, you noted was that work- worker solidarity uh, becomes weaker because there are because there are less workers, um, and I wanna I guess I wanna us to go to the thinking about um, a San Francisco uh, union worker solidarity with the movement against South African apartheid. Uh, in the as early as 1960 um and thinking about the way that local solidarities um which is kind of like you're you're tracing the the construction of this like worker solidarity and this worker power over the course of your book and how and why it's able to kind of enable a transnational solidarity um, so if you could tell us a little bit about how and why these transnational solidarities with South African apartheid were formed um, and some of the, and the different, uh, you trace a few different, I guess, ideologies that uh, help can help in, inform our understanding of that. Yeah, of course. Well, so containerization is such a huge shift. And I should note that very few labor historians, very few historians of technology, very few other scholars outside of history. This field, in my opinion, and I should note maritime historians too, beyond the United States, the container era, as important as it is, is crying out for more people to study it. So there's a sort of a, for someone who is potentially interested, containerization, in my opinion, dramatically impacts worker power, but I don't know. um, And it also impacts solidarity, as you say, because there's... um, the nature of the work changes so that rather than gangs of men, often in pairs also within the gangs, working together, suddenly far fewer workers, but also you're literally not dependent upon each other just to lift and load. Now, actually, workers are still dependent on each other. It's still a relatively dangerous workplace, but less dangerous. But um, the amazing thing, in my opinion, one amazing thing is that these workers um, inherit this collective consciousness uh, through their union as well as their work. So they hold on to these notions of solidarity, even though they now are fewer, and even though the work is different, and even though actually a lot of these people, and now there are some women, but it's still mostly men, um, in fact, are pretty well paid, right? Um, and so what's that about? Well, remember that most of the workers in the Bay Area local, local 10, are 
become African-American by the late 60s. Um, they are, have both black and white members have um, demonstrated a commitment to anti-racism. Um, as you were mentioning a minute ago, like a number of African-Americans are left-wing, but also um, pan-African in their sensibilities so that they're sympathetic to freedom struggles of black people beyond the United States. Um, and these different political tendencies, you might say, converge in the 60s and then especially expand in the 70s so that we've got a core group of African-Americans and white dock workers at the local 10 level, but also a few key allies in the international who are willing to use their power, um, not just to improve their own paychecks, not only to sort of fight for equality at home, but also to fight for people who they've never met before, people in South Africa, people who are suffering, but who they don't really know. Um, it's because of their economic and racial politics that they sort of come to become anti-apartheid. So in the 1962, for the first time, dock workers in the Bay Area refused to cross a community, a small community picket line thrown up by the American Committee of Africa um, uh, to not unload South African cargo at a pier in San Francisco. But that was with the coordination on the inside of African-American leaders within the union. Um, then after the student uprising in Soweto, South Africa in 1976, an expansion of the struggle within South Africa, dock workers, radical dock workers in Local 10 form a committee within their local um, called the Southern Africa Liberation Support Committee. Um, so they're going to educate their members. They're going to educate people in the Bay Area as well as beyond the Bay Area to be anti-apartheid. And then to do things to sort of try to overthrow apartheid, that includes maybe familiar tactics like not buying products made in South Africa, boycott, um, not investing in companies pay, um, that do business in South Africa, divestment. But most importantly, in the case of these workers, demonstrating once more their power um, at what I and others call a strategic choke point, meaning a, a, a node of the global economy where there's an inherent weakness um, so even though there's fewer workers, these dock workers still are as important as they were 100 years ago, 200 years ago to the local and national and global economies. Um, even today, 90% of the things we consume are moved by ship for at least part of their journeys. So that we have a group of people who are committed to freedom struggles in South Africa, but also in Mozambique and what then was Rhodesia became Zambia. And, um, you know, so they repeatedly refused to unload cargo from South Africa, most importantly in 1984 for 10 days, um, when a Dutch ship comes in with South African cargo. And so they basically um, have planned this action um, just days after the Ronald Reagan's landslide re-election, coincidentally, um, and um, demonstrate basically how workers could play a role in the struggle against apartheid, as opposed to citizens or consumers um, and they inspire many people in the Bay Area and beyond to sort of become more active themselves. Um, this tactic of basically not working cargo from a country because uh, the workers don't like the politics of what's going on in that country, this is not unique to the anti-apartheid struggle. But the struggle against apartheid was the issue that galvanized dock workers in the Bay Area, but also in some other ports in Australia, New Zealand, in some European ports to do something similar. And, you know, demonstrated once more worker power, but also we're trying to, as you noted, like transnationally act, um, act for people in other nations, um, again, in sort of sympathy and solidarity um, in ways that are very unusual. Um, because as I've said many times, right, like, you know, it's one thing to go to a protest or a rally, but what if you had to pay to go to a rally? Um, these workers who aren't working because they refuse to touch this cargo are essentially taking money out of their pockets for 10 days um, uh, in, in sympathy with people who they don't know personally, uh, who they've never met. Um, and so then that's why, well, they share a common racial ideology. They share some sort of political ideology that helps us understand why these people made this choice in these times um, that are pretty unusual. They're not unique, but they're, they're unusual and for me, very impressive. Right. And yeah. And as you correctly mentioned, uh, it, uh, it was an uh, the strike or the the refusing to offload the goods was uh, it, it worked in kind of like international harmony uh, with other actions that were going on against the regime and in the book I thought uh, 
your, your noting of how it inspired, how the dock workers inspired the, um, the student protest at Berkeley, uh, which became uh, the center of national attention on uh, students against anti-apartheid was also uh, was also very well done. Yeah. I've met a lot of Bay Area people over the years, and some of them take exception to my um, claims, although others agree. Um, but yeah, so, so the actions on the docks was sort of late 84. Um, there was already some student activism, as you actually know very well, right? Um, prior to 84 and 85, but like um, UC Berkeley students and other UC campuses really increased their activism in 85. And the LWU members in Local 10 are actually giving support. And even in some cases, you know, some of these um, Berkeley people are even sort of related to ILWU members, I mean, whose kids have gone off to college, right? Like, uh, And so there's lots of networks that exist uh, in every community, including the barrier, um, that are sort of um, built upon to drastically increase um, U.S. anti-apartheid activism in yeah, the mid-80s. And simultaneously, in Washington, D.C., where there's, you know, the sanctions efforts are being led by Congressman Ron Dellums, who's elected from and represents and is from the East Bay, and whose father was a member of ILW Local 10. Um, and so it's not because exclusively his father was a dock worker, but it's clearly part of his consciousness. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's very aware that he's being arrested in DC for sitting in at the South African embassy, but he's also, no, he spoke at the, uh, you know, in San Francisco, right. Um, at pier 80 during the time that, um, dock workers are refusing to work cargo. Right. Um, one last thing I want, uh, I want you to kind of discuss, I think that, uh, and, and you did briefly mention this, um, a lot of the times when, when we talk about uh, transnational solidarity and the risks or um, the different levels of precarity that some of these grassroots actors um, kind of take on when they, when they engage in a radical act of, of solidarity uh, with another group elsewhere. Um, Oftentimes we overlook we overlook those consequences um, and what those individuals are really uh, putting at stake um, when you refuse a work order or or you do a work stoppage or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so, can you speak to some of the broader, perhaps, um, challenges a, a dock worker? or yeah, a dock worker might have encountered for being a part of uh, a transnational action of solidarity. Um, you did mention uh, it's like paying to go to a, go to a protest because they're taking literal money out of their pockets to um, not do this work. Um, what are some other? Um, yeah. So um, I should note also that these dispatchers in the local, I mean, these guys were well organized, right? They were trying to dispatch people who were sympathetic right? They don't want anyone to cross the line, right? They probably won't. But like, you know, there's other ships in port at the time. So like, if someone's not really sort of simpatico with this action, well, no problem. The dispatcher could move them to a ship elsewhere, right? Like, so some people are working, but these guys, I mean, the dozens who are, um, you know, what the risks are, are great. Well, first of all, uh, they could be uh, arrested and thrown into prison. San Francisco, like most American cities have a, basically a, a goon squad that sort of um, often nicknamed the Red Squad that has investigated and sort of persecuted radicals, black radicals, Chicano radicals, um, labor radicals, etc. Um, the San Francisco tax squad, um, you know, could beat people up or worse. Um, the employers quickly fire, filed a federal in, uh, filed for an injunction in federal court saying these workers are breaking contract. Um, workers don't get to decide what work they do. They just get dispatched, right? Uh, and so the union itself and individual leaders were named in the injunction so that there could have been, there were in fact threatened huge fines uh, for individuals in the thousands and tens of thousands for the union, hundreds of thousands, um, and potentially the imprisonment of the leaders if they refused to abide by the injunction. Now the injunction was enforced, but it wasn't, um, wasn't put into effect, meaning that basically, although these individuals in the union could have been fined. It was fines were levied per day. Essentially, they um, after the workers stopped the boycott, 
they uh, weren't given those fines and no one was imprisoned. Um, this union, having been a radical union for a long time, has actually done something very clever. They've put their main assets, uh, their building assets, into separate organizations so that like Local 10, for instance, um, their building, which is now in Fisherman's Wharf, but then was a working waterfront, um, is technically not owned by the union. It's owned by a group of retired dock workers who have an association of pensioners, they call themselves, um, so that uh, essentially the courts couldn't take their union hall um, if they were being sort of, uh, their assets were trying to be um, pay, uh, sort of taken, right, by the state. Um, that's sort of uh, really interesting how they've dealt with that, right? Like, uh, you know, and so uh, imprisonment, financial um, are the sort of very real sort of dangers that these workers have. And so uh, someone who refuses to buy South African wine is doing something good, but yeah, there's no real danger to that person. You buy Australian wine, you buy California wine, right? Like, uh, but workers who engage in these specific sorts of actions were taking on a level of risk um, uh, as well as sort of a economic hit, right? Um, that is, in my opinion, further evidence of their commitment to this particular cause. Right. And I think, I think we should always keep that kind of insight when we're talking about uh, some of our activists. Well, Peter, um, thank you so much for speaking with us. Before you go, I wanted to um, ask you about what you're working on now. Mm, sure. Well, it's my pleasure to talk about that too. Um, you know, uh, I have been working on a variety of small articles and uh, have been thinking about a new book. But um, as you know, since you're a Chicagoan, right, um, most of my non-teaching energies have been going into a public art project that I'm trying to get off the ground. Um, this is a city that suffered racial violence on many occasions, including recently, uh, sort of the most well-known recent incident was the killing of Laquan McDonald, but also Rakia Boyd. Um, but in 1919, there was a, a huge, uh, well, there was a, one black kid was killed by a white man for, the black kid was killed for swimming in a so-called white part of Lake Michigan. Um, and that set off what became known as the Chicago race riot of 1919, um, in which 38 people were killed and more than 500 injured. No one knows about that history, but also no one knows the legacy of that was that it drastically contributed to the subsequent hardening and expansion of residential racial segregation that the city is still very well known for. Um, my desire, having taught in 20 years, for 20 years in Illinois, knowing that my students don't know about this, but also having spent a lot of time in Germany in recent years, is to bring a German art project idea to the streets of Chicago, where we would locate artistic markers um, at each of the locations where these people were killed in 1919 to remind or actually inform Chicagoans and pedestrians of the history of racial violence in the city of Chicago and the legacy of racial violence so that we can hopefully move towards um, a, a city and a society that is um, more appreciative of the long history of racial violence that continues to impact black lives in our time. Um, and so um, I've been building up a group of people to sort of work with me. I've given a lot of presentations as has my co-director on this project which we call the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project. And in recent weeks, we've been having serious talks with the mayor's office in the city of Chicago to see if they are willing to sort of essentially adopt us. If that happens, we will be able to move faster and further, hopefully, in turning our vision into this reality. And so in the same way that down in Montgomery, Alabama, Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative have created this museum dedicated to the history of lynching and violence uh, against black people. I'm trying to sort of do something very different. Um, uh, uh, for me, uh, for, uh, I've never done anything of this sort before, but to create a public art project in the city. Um, and if it works here, and well, we'll see, um, you know, this idea could be exported, if you will, to other cities in the same way that this project that I is inspired by that began in Berlin in the 90s um, and Cologne, Germany. Now there are 75,000 of these markers that recognize Holocaust victims' homes across 24 countries in Europe. Um, I would love it if the United States of America continued to move in the direction of recognizing the 350 plus years of racism and racial violence in our country. 
Um, and so that, in other words, we might learn something from the Germans, perhaps ironically, um, and um, recognize more of our nasty history um, because it, forgetting it or disappearing it has not resulted in racial equity and harmony in our time. Um, and so in the same way that my historical scholarly research is sort of trying to highlight anti-racist work, I'm trying to engage in a little of that in a different way um, when I'm not talking to you and my girlfriend uh, about like what to eat for dinner. I think that sounds like a fascinating project. I mean, it's going to be so, so important just uh, for children growing up in Chicago public schools, being able to find stumbling stones or whatever you call them, commemorative stones around the city that actually encourage um, kids to leave their neighborhoods and go to other areas of the city. Um, just like doing a, a local kind of like desegregation to go see different stumbling zones or, or. Yes. Yes. I should also say that the mayor's office has been working with actually my group and well as some others to develop curriculum on the history of Chicago 1919. So that Chicago public school kids in their 10th grade U.S. history classes in the future will hopefully have a module on this subject and more generally the red summer of 1919. Um, so our primary intention is public art, but we're even broader than that is essentially awareness about this history and its impacts on our lives today. Um, and so, yeah, but I love the way you said it, um, that uh, imagining people exploring their city, um, but also, as you said, the German translation of this project is stumbling stones, right? Um, that you metaphorically stumble across something you didn't know about that, in fact, um, reminds you or teaches you or provokes you to think about a subject that you might rather avoid um, uh, because avoiding these subjects has not resulted in the society that we want to be. Well, I'm really glad to hear that you're getting into CPS as well. You're starting to have some conversations about how we can change just even how history is you know, taught in Chicago public schools. I had great teachers going to Chicago public schools, but you know, 1919 was not something we learned about. Mm-hmm. So, so thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and I wish you good luck. Oh, thank you so much. And I, of course, appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate your um, willingness to sort of invite me on the show, read my book and share my work with uh, your, your vast audience. Of course. Uh, <laughs> talk to you later, Peter. Yes. Good day. <laughs> <laughs>